Claude Bernard was a French physiologist, meaning someone who studies the functions and mechanisms of living systems, who lived during the 19th century, from 1813 until 1878. Bernard is perhaps most famous for his work on the practice of science, removed from any particular focused field within the realm of scientific inquiry. He was one of the first people to speak and write about using so-called blinded experiments as a means of eliminating or limiting bias within those experiments, for instance. He also coined the term interior milieu, which was the original name for the interstitial fluid that exists between our other cells. And he's also pretty well known for developing the concept of homeostasis, which is the state of balance and equilibrium that is achieved by living things at the biological level, if they hope to continue living, at least. Less noteworthy in the sense of being broad-reaching and vital for so many practices and foundational concepts, but just as interesting in some ways, is the fact that Bernard accidentally and somewhat asymmetrically catalyzed the first-ever popular fad diet, which was called Banting. Banting was named after William Banting, a well-known undertaker, and at times, undertaker to the stars, to royalty, which is part of what made him so well-known and allowed him to be so influential. He was also obese until he began to limit his intake of starchy and sugary carbohydrates. He changed his diet in this way after a doctor named William Harvey suggested he give it a shot. And Dr. Harvey made that suggestion based on some lectures that he had attended that were presented by Claude Bernard, the homeostasis guy. It turns out that in addition to being interested in how living creatures achieve biological equilibrium, he was also quite interested in the glycogenic function of the liver, which led him to discover its role in internal sugar production, which plays a role in the emergence of diabetes. This insight, which was shared at those lectures, led Dr. Harvey to advise William Banting to give the starchy, sugary carbohydrate avoidance technique a shot. And as a consequence of this dietary shift, Banting lost a bunch of weight. After this weight loss success, Banting wrote a booklet entitled Letter on Corpulence, addressed to the public. Corpulence, at the time, was a common word referring to being obese. If you were experiencing corpulence, you were experiencing obesity. In this booklet, he outlined the approach he took that ended up working for him. And he went through all the other things that he tried that did not work as well, including a variety of different fasts, exercise regimens, and dietary systems, none of which were popular, but all of which had been recommended by somebody who was championing a particular approach to the weight loss issue. This booklet proved to be quite popular, and after self-publishing the first batch, he went on to publish future editions through a major publishing house in London. And this diet, as I mentioned, was the first to really become a thing, to become widespread and popular. And the term banting, as in, are you banting or do you bant, to inquire as to whether or not somebody is on a diet, became so well known across Europe that the Swedish word for being on a diet is banta, named after this guy and his recommendations. 
Today, of course, there are countless diets out there, all with different approaches, and many of them offer contradictory advice as to which methods and systems are most ideal, for whom, and why. What I want to talk about today is a new diet that's being promoted by an unusual source that has a different metric of success than most other diets when it comes to what we eat, how we eat it, and why. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the BBC, and it's entitled A Bit of Meat, A Lot of Veg, The Flexitarian Diet to Feed 10 Billion. This piece stood out to me because it covers a new diet that's been put forward by a group of scientists. But rather than the diet in question being an attempt to help us slim down or get a six-pack or become ketogenic or whatever else, this diet is intended to allow the most people possible to live as healthily as possible in a world with 10 billion people in it. The primary purpose of this dietary research was to figure out what needs to be done to ensure that we don't further exacerbate climate change, don't amplify health problems by allowing one area to eat well while others are fed immensely unhealthy or unbalanced diets, and that we're able to do this with existing technologies and systems. No whiz-bang, maybe someday innovations required, so it would theoretically be practical to start implementing it today. This diet, importantly, is flexitarian at its base, a term that means somewhat vegetarian or almost vegetarian. I would probably be considered flexitarian by some people, for instance, and I eat a vegetarian diet something like 95% of the time and nearly 100% of the time when I'm cooking for myself. But I do eat meat on occasion when the situation calls for it, when I'm really craving it for whatever reason or just because of circumstance or happenstance. The diet described in this article is similar, but it allows for even more meat than I personally consume. And that's interesting and important because it helps to set these guidelines apart from many other proposed solutions to the health resource production and distribution issues that we suffer from today. Meat is massively resource-intensive compared to most other sources of nutrition. But it's also an integral part of many people's habits, routines, tastes, rhythms, and traditions. A diet that manages to cut back on excess while still allowing dedicated meat eaters to indulge is not new, but it is unusual in a space that is often dominated by ideas that exist squarely in the opposite extreme. Gray area concepts that are not 100% of one thing or another do not tend to be as popular because they don't make anyone perfectly happy or tribalistically satisfied. But this could prove to be the right approach in this instance, in a space where it would seem that something needs to be done lest we continue to actively worsen some of our most foundational problems, even as they balloon to more massive scales and become intertwined with more facets of our lives. Let's talk a bit more about what this diet entails before putting it into further context. You can actually download the commission report as a PDF in a variety of languages from eatforum.org, and I will link to that in the show notes, but Eat and Lancet, the former and online platform run by a not-for-profit organization that is focused on science-based food transformation, and the latter, a well-regarded medical journal. These two entities spent two years putting together the proposal in that report, which itself 
is a summarized version of a larger report, which is entitled Our Food and the Anthropocene, Healthy Diets from Sustainable Food Systems. The crux of this report is that globally, humanity will need to consume about double the current quantity of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes that we consume today. And at the same time, we will need to eat half as much red meat and sugar as we do today. And all this by 2050, a little over 30 years from the day that I'm recording this in 2019. From the report, quote, Food is the single strongest lever to optimize human health and environmental sustainability on Earth. However, food is currently threatening both people and planet. An immense challenge facing humanity is to provide a growing world population with healthy diets from sustainable food systems. While global food production of calories has generally kept pace with population growth, more than 820 million people still lack sufficient food, and many more consume either low-quality diets or too much food. Unhealthy diets now pose a greater risk to morbidity and mortality than unsafe sex, alcohol, drug, and tobacco use combined. Global food production threatens climate stability and ecosystem resilience and constitutes the single largest driver of environmental degradation and transgression of planetary boundaries. Taken together, the outcome is dire. A radical transformation of the global food system is urgently needed. Without action, the world risks failing to meet the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement, and today's children will inherit a planet that has been severely degraded and where much of the population will increasingly suffer from malnutrition and preventable disease. End quote. It goes on to say, Quote, by assessing the existing scientific evidence, the Commission developed global scientific targets for healthy diets and sustainable food production and integrated these universal scientific targets into a common framework, the safe operating space for food systems, so that planetary health diets, both healthy and environmentally sustainable, could be identified. This safe operating space is defined by scientific targets for intakes of specific food groups to optimize human health and scientific targets for sustainable food production to ensure a stable earth system. The boundaries of the safe operating space are placed at the lower end of the scientific uncertainty range, establishing a safe space which, if transgressed, would push humanity into an uncertainty zone of rising risks. Operating outside this space for any Earth system process, for example, high rates of biodiversity loss, or a food group, for example, insufficient vegetable intake, increases the risk of harm to the stability of the Earth system and human health. When viewed together as an integrated health and sustainability agenda, the scientific targets that define a safe operating space for food systems allow the evaluation of which diets and food production practices together will enable achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement, end quote. There's a lot more to it than that, but that is a solid summary of what they're hoping to achieve, where the goals come from, and what the expected outcomes might look like. Food is integral to the success or failure of our global biome and our role in that ecosystem. Managing our production and consumption of that food allows us to make large-scale changes to ourselves and that larger system, and it's possible to designate which trade-offs are worthwhile and what equilibriums can be achieved so that the most people possible will participate without making too many sacrifices in terms of those broader benefits. In practice, 
This work defines health as, quote, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not just the absence of disease, end quote. That's another angle of what they're trying to address here. You could maybe come up with a plan to feed everyone on the planet vitamin-laden slop that we produce on a sufficient scale so that everyone has plenty of it. But what does that do to us mentally, socially, and so on? What might we be giving up if we give up our customs around food, our enjoyment of food, our habits and routines and rituals that involve nourishment of this kind? So it's not enough to just make sure everyone's getting the nutrition they need. It's coming up with a way to generate and sustain and deliver that nutrition in a way that allows us to keep living rather than just being technically alive. The diet they came up with is described throughout the report in terms of a meal. Half the plate during that meal should be fruits and vegetables, with the other half made up of about one-third whole grains, about one-fourth plant-sourced proteins like beans, legumes, and nuts, a little less than that in unsaturated plant oils, and the remaining 10% or so made up of dairy, added sugars, starchy vegetables, and animal-sourced protein like pork and beef and eggs and fish. They get into deeper detail about what this adds up to in calories per person, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500 calories per day, and they give a bunch of options as to what this might look like in practice. And honestly, the dishes presented look fantastic, though I suppose they would since they're doing their best to make this idea seem appealing. It's difficult to say just how beautiful it would look on plates in most homes day to day rather than in idealized photographs, but the photographs, for what it's worth, in this report look really good. But they also, importantly, delve into the numbers, including lives saved as a consequence of an overall healthier diet, the lessening of disease risk worldwide, and the results of positive environmental outcomes, the limiting of climate change-related emissions, the changeover to more diverse and sustainable agricultural practices, the reduced level of biodiversity loss, and the more effective and efficient use of freshwater resources. Alongside the diet itself and the numbers that justify it, they presented five main strategies to achieve this transformation, which include 1. Seek international and national commitment to shift toward healthy diets. So get everyone involved rather than keeping it isolated to just a few nations so we can scale it and better benefit on a global level, not just a local one. 2. Reorient agricultural priorities from producing high quantities of food to producing healthy food. So essentially, let's opt for a less-of-better approach to food production, which could beneficially bleed over into many facets of ecology and the economy. 3. Sustainably intensify food production to increase high-quality output, meaning once you've got that less-of-better method in place, scale it up without losing sight of what makes it so beneficial. Opt for thoughtful innovation and growth rather than just size for the sake of size. 4. Instigate strong and coordinated governance of land and oceans. The idea is to treat our ecosystem better so that we and everything else in it might flourish. This is a key component of this entire plan. And five, cut in half, at the minimum, food losses and waste. So 50% less food waste at least by 2050. That's a big number, but it seems like it could be doable, especially if we're already rethinking our food production, management, and distribution systems as part of this plan. So let's talk for a moment about diets and dieting in general. There is, especially in wealthier nations, for a variety of reasons, 
what we might call a dieting industrial complex. Consumerist magazine once concisely described this industry thusly, quote, there's only so many ways to rephrase the concept of eat less crap and get some exercise. That doesn't mean that media outlets in the diet and fitness industry are ever going to stop trying, even if that means bombarding the public with contradictory advice, end quote. I've spoken about this adjacently a few times on this podcast in the past, but the key takeaways here, in my mind, is that we know a few fundamentals about optimal health and diet, and those fundamentals make their way into some, but not all, trendy pop diets. But these trend diets themselves, although often predicated on something very much like science, are often not as rigorous and defensible as they tend to portray. The idea isn't to do good science and save the world, in most cases, even if they say it is. It's to build a brand that can then be used to sell us tons of artificially expensive salad dressing and avocado oil and coconut whatever. The industry here, though, is a powerful force. And leaving aside specific diets and what they promote, scientific or non-scientific, the marketing machine behind these things is itself a force that has to be considered anytime some new set of data points and recommendations come along. Consider, for instance, that this proposal that has been outlined is more nuanced than most diets that are sold to the public. We're not talking about reducing flab or getting fit. We're not talking about selling change in a box. We're talking about being healthy according to multiple meanings of the word and helping the world achieve that same level of health. Not just Trader Joe's shopping yoga pants wearing first world consumers. And we're talking about doing so in such a way that the most people possible will adopt it. And so that as the diet spreads, it will not perpetuate existing negative environmental conditions or propagate new ones. In short, it's a far tougher sell than most of the competition. Because the competition can gleefully market their wares to spendy middle class and higher developed world audiences without worrying about the repercussions of that lifestyle. The idea behind most of these diets is not that we need to build something that we can safely scale up to 10 billion people. It's that we need to sell this concept and its associated brand and products and services to relatively wealthy people who can afford to pay us for it and damn the consequences more broadly. Because we're not trying to provide the same to impoverished inner-city Ohio kids or lower-middle-class families in Calcutta, most of these diets can only exist if you assume that they will not be adopted by everyone. Because of their very nature, if they were adopted by everyone, it would be devastating to the world. The dieting industry thrives on making a specific subset of people feel physically and spiritually inadequate, and then selling them the solution to that perceived inadequacy. This diet, on the other hand, is about addressing broader, non-me-centric concerns, which means that I won't necessarily immediately see the most vital, beneficial outcomes of this diet. It was put together in such a way that it will be probably healthier for me than most diets, especially if I eat before adopting it, the average diet of people my age living where I live, making what I make, and so on, as most average diets for most demographics around the world are fairly abysmal by multiple measuring systems. But the main point of this diet over other also potentially healthy for me diets is that it's healthy for me while also being healthy for everyone else and for the planet. And unfortunately, that latter component, that most vital of components, is something that most people kind of sort of want 
on some level. No one wants to feel like they're destroying the planet or nature or hurting other people. But it's also something that's so big that we have trouble feeling it in the same way that we feel weight loss or strength gain or clearer thinking. It's easier to sell people on personally beneficial things because most of the time we are psychologically tied up in the stuff that affects us directly and emotionally and things that exist on a scale that we can personally interact with. And 10 billion people worldwide is way too big for us to fully comprehend on that emotional, personal level. So that's the dietary industry context of this report. It complicates things as does the fact that this industry is so large. Some of the more legitimate estimates that I've seen put it at around $169 billion worldwide in 2016. And those same estimates think that it will grow to around $279 billion by the end of 2023. The people and governments that are more swayed by these entities are almost always among the most internationally influential. They are wealthier people in countries with an outsized impact on worldwide trends, and economics. This means that even with the best of intentions and tons of factual information backing it, a diet of this kind could face a lot of opposition, even before it slams up against the black hole-like barrier of inattention and can't-be-botheredness of the average person's practical attention span and levels of distraction. Even good people with good intentions and morals whose ideologies line up squarely with this diet's ambitions may either miss it in the deluge of other things that they have to worry about and consume, or ignore it as being too big a change from how they conveniently operate today. Let's talk about the ecological context of this report, which is a fundamental component of why it was put together in the first place. That context isn't great. I did an episode not long ago about the IPCC 2018 climate report, and the findings and predictions are pretty grim. It's not looking good on the climate front, or in terms of the levels of pollution that exist pretty much everywhere, which in turn are causing countless health issues and devastating countless ecologies that we rely upon to varying degrees for our survival and flourishing. But as I mentioned a moment ago, we just are not great at grasping these sorts of problems, and our brains tend to force us to look right past the Godzilla-sized monster standing in front of us, dominating the horizon, and instead focuses our attention on the smaller, human-scale, individual-scale problems that we face day-to-day. Even though that monster could very well someday stomp its way into our space, destroying all the things that we individually focus on, all the things we care about, it's easier, psychologically, to ignore those big problems until that very last minute, or until after the individual scale devastation has already been wrought, everything's been destroyed, and then we start paying attention. It's possible to get people to care about big, seemingly distant, and not affecting us yet stuff. We've done it before. The Clean Air Act of 1963 was a pretty solid success story in terms of regulating and legislating an issue that most people didn't care about on a personal level quite yet. But these sorts of successes are unfortunately the exception rather than the rule at this point. And part of the problem seems to be psychology, part is the way that we communicate and consume news and other types of information, I think. And part of the problem is that there are so many incentives in place that encourage people and people-made entities like corporations to plow through anything that stands in their way, even if doing so will eventually lead to their own destruction 
as is the case with, for instance, certain industries that are destroying entire ecosystems and the planet in pursuit of wealth, seemingly unperturbed by the fact that someday they will run out of raw materials to consume, or they will so utterly pollute the planet on which they and their board of directors exist that the wealth they have accumulated will not be able to save them from the consequences of their own actions. A lot of these people and entities, I think, expect pushback, or rather they go, go, go until they encounter that pushback. And balanced systems of governance and law tend to establish barriers that will give them that pushback at equitable distances. It's just that we've also got levers in place that can allow these entities to bypass those pushback mechanisms. And we are prone to neglecting the invention of new barriers for ideological and practical reasons, which can result in this sort of dangerous and damaging excess. What's more, at times, it is some of the most arguably valuable aspects of our societies, like the freedom to pursue happiness, whatever happiness might mean to you as an individual. It's these things that keep us from moving in what might be civilizationally positive directions. Actions taken by the individual can stand in the way of the individual perhaps being happier and healthier down the line, because in the near term, it can seem like any personal sacrifice, no matter how small, might be something that we are simply being forced to give up, with no guarantee of interest paid on that sacrifice. It can seem like a fee rather than an investment, and as such, many people will do whatever they can to avoid paying that perceived fee, to avoid giving up even a penny for what we might consider to be the benefit of others rather than the benefit of us. Even though, in most cases, benefiting others by benefiting society or our ecosystem will also benefit us because we are a part of that same interconnected web of entities. I wonder how we might reframe these sorts of issues to make them more palatable to people, to make it more likely that more of us, wherever we come from, whatever our specific values and behaviors, might be willing to try things, to sacrifice in small or even large ways for potential large-scale outcomes that would help others, billions of others, and not just ourselves. We would be part of that group, of course. We are part of the human species. But how do we sell these types of ideas to people so that they do not immediately dismiss them as not being me-centric and therefore not being worthwhile? It's far easier to say that we want to make change than to actually make change. And whether this report outlines a solution that would actually work or not is beyond my ability to confidently say. But these types of solutions, these types of ideas... I do think represent one potentially valuable path for solving some of the problems that we face as a species, as the world changes around us, and as we find ourselves on a regular basis tripping over problems that we did not foresee, and wondering, as we fall over and over and over again, how we might regain some semblance of control over our civilizational destiny. The book that I'd like to recommend today comes from an old favorite author of mine, Kim Stanley Robinson, who is perhaps most famous for having written the Mars trilogy, including Red, Green, and Blue Mars, which takes us from the beginning of the colonization of Mars all the way to a fully terraformed Mars in the not terribly distant future. 
He has written tons of wonderful books, though, and a lot of them stand out in a way for being techno-optimistic rather than being techno-pessimistic, rather than dystopias. He tends to present things going well despite things not going super well all the time, which is a really nice voice to have in this space, especially in the hard science fiction space where the technology matters and is realistic. It's good to have people writing the stories of how things might go well. This book, Red Moon, which I suspect is an allusion to the title of Red Mars from that Mars trilogy, is a completely separate book. I think it's just a novel rather than part of a series, though I might be wrong about that. In any case, it's relatively new, and it's a somewhat action-packed science fiction adventure story that takes place between a dual superpower-ruled Earth, where there is a somewhat declining but still incredibly powerful United States, and a fully established, very dominant superpower, China, that have kind of divided the planet between themselves, at least culturally. They haven't gone and taken over everything, but they definitely have about equal spheres of influence. But up on the moon, China was the first to really start making investments there and building out bases. And that's where the other portion of this story takes place, on a collection of different bases and infrastructure, some of them official and some of them unofficial, that exist on a moon that has finally been colonized, and where the normal rules of operation are not as well enforced as they are down planet side. As tends to be the case with Robinson's books, this story is told from the perspectives of, I want to say, three or four different characters. All of them are quite interesting, the character development is quite good, and the story moves in a direction in which what is happening on the moon between these characters is causing disruption and revolutionary thought down on Earth. And I think I'll leave it there so that I don't give away too much, but if you're looking for a fun and easy read that nonetheless has some very big ideas and interesting political and technological intrigue involved, consider picking up a copy of Red Moon by Kim Stanley Robinson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can learn about the speaking tour that I'm currently on as I record this and see if I'm coming to your neck of the woods and pick up tickets if relevant at becomingtour.com. And you can find out more about that new project that I mentioned a moment ago and ask a question if you care to at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media, on Instagram and Twitter and such. I am at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright. And I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.